The poison of corporate controlled information is pervasive within the American media landscape, which makes the Laura Flanders show one of the most important places that we can go to understand how power works, the reality around us, and how to resist. This is Chris Hedges, and I listen to The Laura Flanders Show. Go to patreon.com forward slash The LF Show and become a member. Hi, I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. Abolition, abolishing prisons or at least imagining a world without incarceration as the solution to all of society's ills. It's an idea that has come to the fore thanks to mass mobilizations around police killings in the movement for black lives. But achieving anything resembling social justice is going to take much more than reforming our criminal justice system shifting money, say, from police and prisons to social services and care, valuing all lives equally and treating them as if we believed in a universal value of human life, is going to require a profound reckoning with all sorts of things, because our system of othering lies at the heart of our governance, our economy, and our society. That's why I talked with historian Vijay Prashad for a recent episode of our show on the economics of abolition. For your listening and pondering pleasure, here's my full conversation with Vijay Prashad. He's the executive director of the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research, a movement-driven institution focused on building peace and justice through provoking intellectual debate. I'm very happy to welcome to the Laura Flanders Show, Vijay Prashad. Vijay, we're here to talk about abolition, the economics of abolition in particular. But let's start with defining our terms. When you talk about abolition, what do you mean by that word? Uh, first, is, Laura, it's great to be with you. Abolition is a, is a tough concept because in a way, it's a synonym for freedom and for emancipation. And if you think about the origins of the words political use in the history of the United States, it's precisely about freedom. It's emancipation from perhaps one of the most horrendous things human beings have done, which is to enslave other human beings. So the abolition movement was the movement of emancipation of people who had been enslaved. You know, today, human beings face a different kind of enslavement. And I'm using the word enslavement, I think, both deliberately and emotionally. We are enslaved in a way, in a system that denies us freedom because we don't have money. Uh, just take the case of hunger. The Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN has reports that show that there's just enough food on the planet. In fact, way more than we need. We waste a lot, but there's just enough food on the planet. Hunger is not a supply problem, but there's lots of hungry people. And it might turn out, Laura, at the end of the pandemic, that one in two people on the planet struggle to some extent with a lack of nutrition. So what prevents a hungry person from getting food? It's not the availability of food. It's the lack of money. Because you don't have money in your pocket, you can't eat. The way I understand abolition or emancipation is we need to abolish the system that prevents people from eating because they don't have money. It seems to me immoral, unjust, that we have such great levels of hunger 
in these times when we produce enough food. So we need to emancipate people from being enslaved by a system that robs us of our dignity. So if people were enslaved in the period that we think of as the period of slavery, classically understood, because of colonialism and slavery, the slave economy as we think of it. What are they enslaved by now? So what, what system would we need to abolish to emancipate ourselves in, in the way that you're describing? Well, here's the scary thing. If I don't name the system, everything I've said sounds logical. I mean, <laughs> who is going to disagree with me, Laura, that there are hungry people maybe two and a half billion people who don't get access to food, who go to sleep hungry at night. I mean, this should disturb everybody yeah. because everybody should be moved by the fact that two and a half billion people go to bed hungry at night and of them, most of them are children, it turns out. When I put it like that, you say, well, of course I agree with you. But if I say that what prevents the hungry from getting access to food is money, and the lack of money, the dispossession of large numbers of people is a consequence of, and, and here it comes, is a consequence of capitalism. And that therefore, we have to think hard about the fact that capitalism is simply not capable of feeding half the world's population. And therefore, we need to abolish capitalism. That scares people because they think, well, what are you talking about? I mean, capitalism is what provides us with wealth. And then, of course, one turns around and says, no, it's not capitalism that provides you with wealth or with the you know, amazing things that the modern world has. It's human ingenuity and human labor that provides you with all the great things you have. Not capitalism. Capitalism, in fact, denies enormous numbers of people with the ability to live with dignity. So as I said, you know, if I had started by saying, well, you know, abolition means the abolition of capitalism, nobody wants to watch that because... That's terrifying. Yeah. But if you think about it and you wonder why are people dispossessed? You know, why don't people have money in their pocket? It's not because they're not working or trying to find work. You know, these two things are important. People work and are not able to cover their bills. You know, the, the 100 million people fall into poverty in India every year because of healthcare bills. That's a third of the US population. So you've talked about capitalism, economics, abolition, enslavement, food, poverty, hunger. You haven't mentioned race yet. If we look at our movements, our social movements today that are raising the battle cry of abolition, there are Black Lives Matter movements, our movement for black lives. It's very specifically viewed through a racial lens. How do you see the racial lens and, and, and the patriarchal lens playing in all this? Well, it's, this is central to the conversation, and I'm glad we, we're getting to all this so fast. I mean, because most of the planet is not white, but the numbers dictate that most of the people who are hungry happen to be non-white. You know, it just turns out that just because of this pandemic, hunger rates are increasing dramatically in South Asia and in the continent of Africa. So just in the African continent and in South Asia, you have majority non-white people slipping further and further into hunger. In the West, it's of course people of color that are slipping at higher rates into hunger and poverty. But happen this, to be, you talked about systems not happen yes. to be. Well, they happen to be now because we don't give enough pay attention to understand why they happen to be. And I think that's, that's where one has to ask. And 
this is the history of colonialism. Um, you know, when Karl Marx writes his quite magisterial book, Capital, in the last third of the book, he talks about how capitalism emerges. And, you know, the imagery is vivid. Capitalism emerges dripping in blood out of the colonies because it's because of the enslavement of people in the Caribbean, in South America, in, in, the, in the North American colonies at the time and in the, the United States, it's because of enslavement that large amounts of wealth was stolen from people, taken to Britain and so on to fund the industrial revolution. So you mean it wasn't some bright Lancashire men who figured out how to invent a steam engine? Steam engines could have been manufactured at the same time in 50 places. The issue isn't having the idea. We know that. You know, there are children in very poor areas that have ingenuity and they come up with a brilliant thing. In India, we have a name for it. We call it Jugar. I mean, Jugar is, I suppose you can call it make do. You know, we don't have money. We don't have advanced technology. We'll make do. We'll figure out how to fix things. And, you know, ingenuity is a common human trait. Ingenuity doesn't produce capitalism. It's ingenuity plus capital. You need money to take your ideas and advance them into technology and then into scale them up into factories and so on. One third of Manchester, you said Lancashire, but I only know the statistics for Manchester. <laughs> you know, I was born in Calcutta, Beng in Bengal, and one third of the capital down payment for Manchester comes from Bengal. Now, People buy homes in the West. I'm talking about private consumption, not capitalism. But when you buy a home, the down payment is about 10%, 12%. Imagine if you could put 30% down, which was not yours, which you went to Bengal and stole all this money from the peasantry and put that down, 30% of it, to build a factory. That's a huge advantage that you have. So that's how colonialism finances capitalism and has then... 300 years of impact in the history of capitalist development. And the relationship with racism, just to put a fine pin on it. I don't mean to sound as if racism emerges to justify something. But guess what? It often does. And in this case, when colonialism began to develop, these ideas come, which is that certain people in the world just don't deserve to live with the fruits of dignity. I mean, John Locke, the British plantation owner, he owned plantations in Virginia, John Locke, who wrote these treaties on government and is, you know, seen as one of the important figures in liberalism. In the second treatise of government, John Locke says that Native Americans, because they don't advance and develop God's bounty, you know, God gives you the land. This is a very racist idea because they don't deserve God's bounty. They can be exterminated. They can be dispossessed. I mean, this is one of the people looked at as the main figures, intellectual figures of the Enlightenment and of, of liberalism, really, who's saying it's okay to disrespect entirely Native Americans, dispossess them, exterminate them, etc. Racism is cooked in to the key ideology of capitalism, which is liberalism. It's okay to enslave people from the African continent because they're not exactly like Europeans. This is baked in. It's not baked into the ideology of slavery. It's baked into the ideology of liberalism because liberal thinkers were saying imperialism is justified, slavery is justified, and good God, the extermination of the people in the Americas is justified. That should make your heart stop, that it's not some right-wing ideologue who's saying that. It's John Locke who's taught to young American children 
as one of the important intellectual godfathers of the American Revolution. We could spend a lot of time trying to unravel, like, which came first? Was it racial hierarchies that were exploitable by colonialism and, and everything you've described? Or were the racial hierarchies kind of laid on top of a system of dispossession that people needed to justify? The reason this is important to talk about this, it seems to me, is because while everything that you've said is deeply discouraging because it paints such a long pitch, such a long history of a very big system that we can, as individuals, even as groups, feel quite small in contrast to. On the other side, it does at least indicate that this dispossession was a man-made kind of a thing and that it's a system that we could perhaps unravel. And I'm asking you now to think about this moment that we're in of movement and uprising. What excites you about it? Where do you see the potential and where perhaps the pitfalls? And I'm thinking of the movement for black lives, the movement for defund the police and these calls for abolition that are getting louder by the day. So, I mean, you, you're asking a very important question, which requires, I think, a lot of discussion. And one of the nice thing about this moment is that it's brought the question of racism uh, in the United States in particular, but also in Great Britain, you know, where the throwing of the statues of men who enslaved others into rivers, you know, is a moment that makes your heart sing, you know, finally. And somebody wrote racist on a statue of Winston Churchill. I mean, why has it taken so long? Amazing, you know, so- Although you're gonna, Now that you've said that, you need to explain because nobody in the United States has any idea of Winston Churchill as anything other than the great leader of the people in wartime um, because we haven't had a movie made about the other side of him. Well, <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> Churchill, you know, was a military man and he spent his whole youth in the colonies, whether it's in today, what is Northern Pakistan? You know, he was in, in, in Sudan, in Khartoum. He was everywhere. And he wrote extraordinarily ruthlessly about the people that he was amongst. I mean, he wrote hideously racist things, but that's not what I'm even talking about. Let's just think about Winston Churchill and Bengal. In 1943, there was a terrible cyclone in the Bay of Bengal and it devastated parts of the countryside and so on. Churchill was then the prime minister of, well, Britain and the empire, and they diverted food grains out of Bengal because it was a huge breadbasket to the troops. And they created a famine situation, a totally unnecessary famine, where between one to three million people died. Now, think about that. That's half the number of people that died in the Nazi death camps uh, in Poland and, and in, in Germany. You know, we say the number there is five to six million people. Up to 3 million people were killed by Winston Churchill in Bengal in 1943 mm. in an induced famine because they took food out of people's mouths to feed the troops. Um, there were Australian ships, weak ships going by Bengal. He said, no, no ship is going to go there. We're going to get the food out of there and take it to our troops. Now tell me he's not a racist. I mean, this, I'm sorry, is personal. And Winston... This is a whole personal thing with me, uh, between me and you. And when I see these films, Laura, it makes my heart sick that people don't, they don't care. These filmmakers don't care about us. You know, they have essentially a white perspective on history. They don't care about us. They don't care about what happened in Bengal or what happened in the Congo. They really just don't seem to think we exist. Um, 
you know, they're interested in this man sitting in his bedroom talking to the Queen. I mean, the TV serial, The Queen, when John Lithgow plays Churchill, it's in those exact years that Churchill is saying, don't feed them in Bengal and, and being the murderer of millions of people. There's not one mention in that television program. Lithgow doesn't at any point you know, and, and this is Lithgow, who personally is a person of, of politics of a liberal sort. Personally, he doesn't tell the director, I can't play this character unless I'm honest to what he did. Mm, mm. You know, it's right there on the internet. It's there in a terrific book, uh, you know, full book about this stuff and so on, you know. Mm. All right. So we were talking about this moment where, for example, racist is being written on a statue of Winston Churchill. And we, we know what's happening in the United States with statues being pulled down and the debate about those monuments. You were talking about the relevance of this moment to the discussion that we're having about how do we change the system, if system it be. It's actually quite simple if you think about it. If you go back to the end of enslavement in the United States, there was a period right after then where the mood was high and the government promised people who had been enslaved that they would get 40 acres and a mule. That was known as reconstruction. And then the United States government, because, you know, remember, they betrayed all the treaties with Native Americans. They betrayed the treaty with those who had been enslaved. Uh, price 40 acres and a mule from 1865 to 2020. It's a lot of money. So one of the things that you see in the way race is reproduced is the lack of funds in entire communities to live with dignity. Why was Eric Garner killed? Eric Garner was alleged to be selling loose cigarettes on the streets of New York. He was suffocated to death for that. Why was George Floyd killed? He was alleged to be passing a counterfeit $20 bill. He was suffocated for that. I'm just taking two examples. If George Floyd's ancestors and George Floyd himself were able to collect back wages, not charity, back wages, which they had stolen from them, you know, wage garnishment. That's what enslavement is. If they were able to get that money, George Floyd wouldn't live a desperate life without the ability to look at the police officer and say, I'm fine here. I'm, you know, but he didn't. He, 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 he was made to live a life where he was struggling to survive. Same with Eric Garner. So I look at today and I say, let's argue for complete debt cancellation. Either we do it on racial grounds or just say all people who make under $100,000 a year will have their debts completely canceled. Who's going to pay for the debt? $32 trillion sitting in tax havens. Go get that money. The external debt of the third world, of developing countries right now is $11 trillion, the external debt. Cancel that completely. That's the beginning. You know, most countries, Laura, they're not asking for handouts. They just want their debt to disappear. And if you disappear the debt, they'll be able to construct dignified lives. People don't want charity. They want dignity. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guest is historian, journalist, and author Vijay Prashad. 
His latest book is Washington Bullets, a history of the CIA coups and assassinations. He and I are digging into the roots of abolition as an idea and a practice. Portions of today's conversation were featured in an episode of The Laura Flanders Show recently on the economics of abolition. You can find that episode and download it at our website. That's lauraflanders.org forward slash listen. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you're already an Apple Podcast subscriber, take a moment to write a review. Thanks. Next, we discuss the movement to defund the police and what shifting resources from incarceration to social services really looks like. But first, here's You Can't Fight Corruption with Corruption by Benny Cooley. Here's that button, Stop the Hate, released on Money, corruption make I'm somebody, as in no nobody. So they must start to fight corruption. Forget he talk with corruption. Forget he drink with corruption. Forget he make friends with corruption. Corruption start to fight them. They say corruption, they fight back. Say he enemies, they attack. For him friends, they backtrack. But you can't fight corruption when you don't chop with corruption. When you don't drink with corruption. When you don't make friends with corruption. As corruption know your secrets, you know go ever no peace. As corruption know your secrets, it go hard make you succeed. And U.S. cities, I mean, a lot has been said by progressive politicians about reducing police budgets in response to the calls for defunding. Less has been done. And we will see in the budgets of many cities and and communities in the next year where the rubber hits the road. But if I were to predict, I would say a whole lot of money continues to flow disproportionately to our system of punishment and incarceration, even when people within that system, many of them police, say you're putting too much on our shoulders um, and what you need to do is fund social services because we're not equipped to deal with a lot of what we're being asked to deal with. What you have just said, Laura, is exactly what should be a broad national discussion, not only in the United States, but in most advanced industrial countries. Because again, you've come to rely on the prison as a way to deal with not criminality, but with social problems. Poverty, the answer to poverty is incarceration. The answer to mental health is incarceration. You know, the answer to young children unable to deal with putting their lives together is incarceration. You know, a young kid having struggling to be a human being in a very complicated world does something, you don't throw them in prison. You help them discover themselves, you know? Well, but in there, you're saying there are choices we could be making. We could be deciding to feed the person rather than pay the cop to arrest the person. Um, But how do we make that change when at least up to this moment, we've been in moments like this before with mass mobilization and then collapse, the sort of desiccation of our movements, often over issues of race, along lines of race and gender and class, We don't even have a labor party, a party of labor in this country. Some people would say that's because of our race divisions. Why is this so hard? Uh, And and is this moment different, Vijay, I guess is our question. I feel like these movements arise punctually, you know, every once in a while, when there is a particularly gruesome murder of somebody, you know, whether it's Michael Brown, that was really gruesome, so unnecessary. 
Tamir Rice. I mean, God, it's a little kid, you know, what, what's going on here? And then I think George Floyd was really stunningly gruesome and it was videotaped. And so punctually, and then we can go all the way back to 1992, Los Angeles, and then maybe the death of Martin Luther King, another gruesome killing. Go back, there are these punctual uprisings, people saying the same thing. And essentially, if I could distill it in economic terms a little bit, I would say what they are saying, Laura, is they're saying the morals of the United States of America are not captured in the US Constitution. Don't keep talking about the Constitution to understand the country. The morals of the US government are captured in the annual budget. The budget is a much better reflection of a country's morality than its Constitution. And if you every single year put more money much more money into repression, into the police, into the military, into imprisonment and so on. And so little money to taking care of human troubles, you know, natural and, and in a way, let me just say necessary human turmoil, because we are a very flawed character. You know, we don't come perfectly. We come with great flaws. We are people with great difficulty. We become human with great difficulty. Put more money into helping us become human. Nobody's saying we're perfect. You know, we're filled with flaws. Mm. We need help. And communities can help. Families can help. Often families don't help very well because they're also dysfunctional in their own way. The government can help. Charities can help and so on. So you need money going there. And the problem, I think, in a country like the United States, but in most of the advanced Western countries, it's the same problem, is that the political class has become so detached from movements, so detached, mm -hmm. you know, so very detached. I mean, you had these protests, you had people coming on the street, then you have the political class essentially coming and scolding people, you know, telling them, we agree with what you're saying, but you're going too far. That's one of the problems in specific terms with the US Democratic Party, is it's too scared of being the leader of the social movements. It keeps trying to demobilize them, which is why it doesn't advance the agenda of the people. It's horrible work, but somebody has to do it. I've been listening to the Sean Hannity program, Far Right Radio, and um, their constant punctuation between the programs, their little PSA messaging is, let this moment radicalize you. And I thought, that is the opposite message from anything you would ever hear on any kind of liberal um, Democratic Party supporting uh, radio program. That being said, talk about this moment for a moment again, because what I see out there on this in the scenario, um, and then we'll, we'll let you go, but what I, I see out there is reconstruction was derailed, not just by federal government failure to act or, or lack of spine, but by a rebellion on the ground to reinforce racism and to reinscribe segregation through black codes and local violence, the Klan, you name it. We know there is a bedrock sort of murmuring of racial violence that's exploding in different places at different times in this country. It's there, it's armed, it's got a leader and um, a mechanism of communication. We have a movement, as you said, that we've seen before, mobilizing around police killing, abolition. And then we have this center elite, this center political center that is already conceding to a discussion about punishment, rule of law, violence, and putting that discussion in the center. 
on the left, we have people that say, let's deal with the economy first. We'll deal with race later. If we lead with race, we don't have a majority. We have to have majority politics. I'm asking you a lot of things, but all of these elements have me afraid. I mean, it makes this a very delicate moment. What advice do you have, especially for those who are trying to figure out how race and gender and capitalism and abolition intersect because the people we're talking to, the people leading these movements are women of color. So let's take the question again in the United States of the Democratic Party. Its majority is a majority of non-white voters. If you don't get black voters to the polls, you can't elect Democrats in most parts of the United States, not everywhere, because there are states where there are no, uh, you know, not the, these substantial populations. In these communities, no question that the leadership at the grassroots are mainly women. Lots of them are LGBTQ leaders uh, who are leading these movements and so on. I just feel like one, it's, it's just a human wrong thing to say, let's deal with these issues first, then we'll get to you. It's humanly wrong, but it's also wrong theoretically because these are such imbricated issues. They are so entangled in each other. You can't deal, for instance, with capitalism unless you deal with patriarchy, because the question of unrecognized labor, care labor and so on, is central to the reproduction of the system. It's central to the way in which small numbers of people are making hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, accumulate that all, it's billions, trillions of dollars. It's this unrecognized labor that allows them to pay people so little so they don't have to, in a way, monetize all this stuff that's happening in their lives. You know, this unrecognized labor is a foundation of the system. So you can't then turn around and say, well, let's tell women who do the majority of, of home labor, over 80% in most countries in the United States, it's very high, much higher than people actually imagine that women are doing. And by care labor, it's not just taking care of the home, it's children and elders. It's often daughters who take care of older parents and so on. It's enormous amount of unrecognized labor. Especially under say, COVID times. Especially under COVID times. And, you, and which is why patriarchal violence has increased and so on globally. You can't say that, listen, fellas, wait in line. We're first going to deal with factory workers who we think are men. Also not true, but, you know, and so on. It, 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 it's both humanly wrong, as I said, and it's also... It's theoretically wrong. You've misunderstood the system. Finally, it's politically wrong because as you said, and, and as, as I totally agree with you, many of these ground level majorities are led by women, many queer women leading them. So, you know, it's politically crazy because you can't tell these women, sorry, we're not going to deal with issues that are important for you. So, you know, three quarters of who you are should, you know, sit aside while we deal with this. It's just silly. So you have to be out there boldly championing the people who are backing you. You know, the problem with liberals and neoliberals and the centrists is they actually think there's a center that exists. You know, the right wing doesn't believe there's a center. They champion their majorities. They champion their movement. The liberals, neoliberals, centrists, they hate the people that elect them. They have disdain for them. And that's why they will, you know, either they will win because we have no choice and therefore by the lesser evil rule. I mean, have you ever seen, you know, the right talk so much about the lesser evil? Yeah. 
you know, they don't really go on and on about, well, the le- Trump is the, even Trump, they didn't say is the lesser evil. They said Hillary Clinton is unacceptable, you know, and we've got to rally behind Trump. In this side of the equation, the left is always told, suck it in, go vote for Hillary Clinton, go vote for Biden, whatever. When are these political movements going to turn around and say, we see you, we recognize you, you have dignity in our eyes. You have dignity in yourself. I don't need Biden to give me dignity. I'm a dignified person. But I want him to say, I see you as dignified. They don't. They look at us and say, I see you as dangerous because we have this fantasy of a center that we're trying to appeal to. Newsflash, Democrats, there really isn't anything called the center. It doesn't actually exist. That was historian, journalist, and author Vijay Prashad. For more information on Prashad, along with a list of links to related episodes from our archives and related articles, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's also where you'll find a link to watch our episode on the economics of abolition that portions of today's conversation appear in. While you're there, support the show by committing to a monthly donation as a Patreon partner. Just like a magazine or a newspaper subscription, you can help produce this show for as little as $3 a month by becoming one of our Patreon partners. So go ahead, do it. Join with us at patreon.com forward slash the LF show and keep the pondering coming. That's patreon.com forward slash the LF show and sign up today. This episode was produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, Matt Colicello, Jeremiah Cothran, Charlotte Carpenter, Nat Needham, Jeannie Hopper, Dominic Marcello, Mercedes Crostiaga, Ryan Holtz, Rory O'Connor, and David Newman. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo, Tomcat, Cloud Mountain, Fonda, Park, Shift Tides, and the Poss Family Foundation, as well as listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Till the next time, I'm Laura.